0: Alright everyone, welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, May 15, 2019 edition of our little weather get-together and we're happy that you are joining us tonight. We hope that uh, you've enjoyed this little bit of a, a cooler weather uh, uh, time that we've seen here over the Carolinas. So I uh, hope you enjoyed that because it's definitely not sticking around. We'll talk a little bit more about the uh, impending heat wave, I guess we can call it heat wave, uh, coming over the next seven to ten days. But this is show number 277. Uh, we want to welcome to the program Dr. David Rusch. Uh He is assistant professor at of civil engineering at auburn university as well as the assistant director of steer network we'll let david talk a little bit about that later on and Steven strader uh he is assistant professor of the department of geography and, Envi- uh, geography and environment uh at villanova uh so uh, gentlemen thank you for uh, joining us tonight we are happy to have you on uh we're going to be talking a little bit about tornadoes and tornado vul- vulnerability and um why tornadoes are a little bit different here in the southeast than, let's say, in the Great Plains. So uh, we're going to be talking about that. We are in the heart of severe weather season, so Hopefully you'll be able to find some good information tonight and you'll be able to apply that to your um, to your everyday lives if we uh, are to see more severe weather, which we probably will between now and the next month or so. But again, this is the show 277. Uh, we'd love for you to interact with us tonight. You can do that one of many different ways. We are streaming right now on Facebook Live and Periscope on Twitch and our YouTube page. So if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to uh, put those into the little comment bar. We'll be monitoring that throughout the show. And if you're listening, on our podcast version, we'll let our guests towards the end of the show give out any social media accounts or websites that you can learn more about the research or you can direct questions to them. So again, uh, we are talking about tornado vulnerability. So I'll bring in our guests tonight, uh, Mr. Uh, David and Stephen. Thank you guys for joining us. And uh, you are a a newbie to the show. So, we're going to give you our, our, our newbie question, our, our, our first time guest <laughs> question. How did you get caught up in this crazy world uh, that we all live in, this uh, weather world? Stephen, I'll start with you.
1: Yeah, it's a question that we all like to be asked. But, um, you know, I vividly sort of always grew up as someone who was very interested in the arts and sciences, and I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do. And in 2005, in, in November, um, a tornado hit my hometown of Evansville, Indiana. Um, it was an EF3 tornado that went right through the heart of a mobile home complex. Um, and it killed 26 people. And I just vividly remember that being something that I I kept coming back to wondering why. And, um, I sort of set off this course of earning my undergrad and my master's and my PhD. And I've sort of come full circle now where I've begun to, um, Focus a lot of my research on tornadoes and
2: mobile home residents. All right. And then for for yeah, me, yeah. the so, so spring of, of nineteen ninety-four, Twister came on in our home for the very first time and I saw it. And no, never mind. That's just kidding. <laughs> um, no, no that seems like the the meteorology community seems to that seems to be the uh the inspiration for so many there with being Twister, but no, mine is actually similar to Stevens in that it was it was really growing up in Florida um, on the coast of Florida actually, and um, getting you know just being there you know it was just part of the you know the fall experience was tracking hurricanes you know and and we would have the 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 plot in the newspaper and we're you know putting each position on the on the page as it you know as they update it. And so weather in that sense has always been a part of of me and then uh, didn't have to deal with too many tornadoes, fortunately. But then when I got to um, graduate school at the University of Florida, it was literally the day after my undergraduate graduation that I went with my uh, research advisor at the time who I'd just been doing a little bit of research with. And he somehow dragged me out to Tuscaloosa. That was in 2011, um, right after that event. And that really just opened my eyes to just the destruction to the, um, you know, what, what these storms can do. And, you know, what really, I guess, piqued my curiosity as an engineer was just seeing how little we actually knew about tornadoes at the time and really understood what was going on and what we could do to prevent it. And so that really kicked off my master's and a PhD. And then, um, it really led into my, the work I'm doing now, both with hurricanes and tornadoes.
0: I forgot to say go Gators. Um, David, yes, go I, knew, get it. I knew he was a florida gator person as am i i know chris jackson's kind of vomiting in his mouth
3: right now. <laughs> <laughs> <Good>
0: <laughs> <talks>. <laughs> but anyway we could talk sec football all night long um steven i think uh looking over some stuff you've been uh involved or have some works with the vortex southeast mission that's Uh, been going on kind of studying severe weather in the Southeast. Uh, We see these study groups go up from time to time, mainly out in the Plain States, but over the past couple of years, uh, we've seen that research uh, here in the Southeast. Could you tell us a little bit about that and uh, maybe how that program, uh, what the results of that program is starting to see with the way that we deal with severe weather here in the Southeast?
1: Yeah. um, So what what we do know is... um, the Vortex Southeast project was really the the, the result of the 2011, um, April 27th, tornado outbreak. Um, specifically, the, the NOAA sort of report that came out about that event was very much geared towards the social science side of things, which was, um, yes, we know that the ingredients were there from a meteorological standpoint. It was a devastating event. Um, but why... Did, you know, we see so many fatalities and it was really the beginning of of Noah saying, let's focus on some of the social science um, behind these events as well. So that sort of started a federal mandate and that's where this Vortex Southeast um, project or this funding opportunity came about. And largely what it's geared towards is getting physical scientists. And, And like myself, I would consider myself a physical scientist. Um, and engineers like David and some others, um, as well as social scientists, coming together and studying um, tornadoes in the southeast. And it stems largely from, you know, um, work that was done in the early mid 2000s um, by um, Walker Ashley at Northern Illinois, where we really, uh, if we look at where tornadoes occur, the majority occur in the central plains, what we think of as Tornado Alley. But if we look at where the majority of tornado fatalities occur, it's the southeast U.S. And that's because of that vulnerability factor that we just don't see in the central plains. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and hop in here and talk about what's kind of going to be one
4: of the driving questions for the whole discussion tonight. What is or I guess it's going to be multiple things. What are the biggest differences between the plains and the southeast when it comes to tornado breaks, both with the social science and with the, you know, the more physical science?
1: Yeah, and, and so this is a really great opportunity to sort of highlight the difference between um, sort of someone like David who comes um, at these tornado events from a different standpoint, from an engineering standpoint, versus someone like me who's um, a meteorologist and, and also has started working more and more with social science. And um, the big difference is um, tornado risk is relatively um, equal in these two regions. The southeast gets a lot of tornadoes. Central Plains gets a lot of tornadoes. There are some risk factors like uh, more nighttime tornadoes in the southeast. Um, and by risk, I mean sort of ingredient, meteorological ingredient factors. Uh, there's also you know lower um, cloud bases, faster storm motions. Those things are, are, are a factor. But the big difference, um, I would point to the first thing would be a greater population density in the southeast. There's just a greater number of people. And I like to tell people if you've if you've driven through the heart of Alabama and you've driven through the heart of Kansas, put those two pictures in your mind and think about what happens if a tornado is planted in the middle of those states. Um, Typically, the odds are greater that people are impacted in Alabama uh, because of that increased population density. But there's other factors, too, that we see in the southeast that we don't see in the central plains. Uh, A lot of it has to do with our manufactured and mobile housing. Um, We just see a greater number. Um, and, and of course, our research uh, between David and I has started looking at other factors related to those mobile manufactured homes, um, but also other factors like poverty, of um, you know, single family, uh, female head of households, non-white. Those, all those factors that we know are related to socioeconomic vulnerability tend to sort of bullseye the Southeast. And that means a lot when it comes to tornado death probability or survivability
3: for that matter. And Stephen, I'm going to hop in here and we're going to just keep on going with that. But, uh, you know, talking about the social sciences and the vulnerabilities, especially in the southeast, um, a lot of folks may not know, but uh, you did some really incredible stuff with the the Beauregard, Alabama tornado earlier this year and uh, uh, was able to, you know, show where some of the fatalities occurred uh, using GIS uh, programs and also using the track data that was available from the National Weather Service. Just get you to talk about that a little bit and what you found.
1: Yeah, so... um this was a good example of where David and I were really um, able to work together. Um, So it started off where sort of, there was some bad weather that night um, headed towards David, who's, I won't say he was lucky enough to be situated in Auburn, which was 10 miles from this tornado um, Beauregard tornado event. And I just sent him a message that said, heads up, there's bad weather. And he was very aware. And then we sort of started the process of, of, taking some online rotational uh, GIS data, plotting uh, mobile home data that I had developed over the last two years with this uh, Vortex Southeast project and giving that to David. And then really, um, I should pass it off to David here because he was able to go out, mm-hmm. conduct these surveys and start thinking and start really assessing where people individually died for this particular event.
2: Yeah, so I'll jump in here and, and just say that you know I echo... Um, Steven's point there and th- th- this this really was a a perfect collaboration opportunity unfortunately um for us with this being you know right here in our backyard and involving so many manufactured homes um then what we're ultimately then hoping to get from this is to really learn some lessons that can derive you know some you know learning some some advancements in knowledge from such a tragic event but What was helpful in this was, you know, Stephen had already done just a ton of work in Alabama overall, you know, digitizing, you know, every single mobile home, every single manufactured home throughout the state um, as best as he could using aerial imagery. And so he already had this database of here's where all these most vulnerable structures are. And so then when we overlay that with a path, as I'm going out, I already know what areas to target in terms of being able to, um you know, identify these and and be able to go more efficiently and and studying them. Um, And so once we got out into the field, it was was a little bit challenging because, and completely understandable, I'm not knocking this at all, but, you know, their access was very limited at first because it was such a, a first response. I mean, they were still searching for, you know, searching for missing persons, you know, three, four days after the event. Um, and so it did take us a little while to get access. But once we, once we were able to get in, we essentially went and tracked down every single fatality location down to the individual home, what type of home it was, Anchorage, so on, who was living there, what happened. And that level of detail is, is really helping us be able to put these fatalities in a proper context, I think.
5: So I'm gonna hop in, I'm gonna ask, You know, we talk about mobile homes, manufactured homes, Give us some breakdown what that means. Like what, how strong of a tornado does it take to flip a mobile home, a manufactured home? What sort of code is built into these to help mitigate some of this risk? Or is that even possible in some of these areas?
2: Yeah, I guess I'll jump in first. And then Stephen, I know you've studied this quite a bit as well. So feel free to jump on anything that I've missed. But um, in terms of what wind speed, so, so nominally the, Manufactured homes are mobile homes. Manufactured homes they're, they're split into to two groups supposedly. So pre 1976 and then post 1976. And why that year is so key is because that's when Housing and Urban Development HUD is when they issued their you know basically their their regulations for the uh, manufacturing and installation of of these mobile homes. And so the general notion is anything built after or installed after 1976 is considered a a manufactured home. Um, And so how they do it is, is, there's essentially three zones. So there's a zone one, zone two, and zone three, zone two and zone three are primarily your, your coastal counties. And really the only designation is what wind speed they're nominally designed to. So as you get to zone two and three, Depends on how you um, characterize the wind speed, but I believe zone two is 100 mile an hour um, kind of sustained wind and zone three is 110. Um, if I'm remembering it, that right off the top of my head. So zone one is where the majority of the U.S. is. And if for example, in Alabama, all but two counties, you know, um, Baldwin and Mobile are in this zone one. And so that's essentially 90 mile an hour sustained wind, but you get in all sorts of complexities when you start talking about what that actually means in a tornado. So there are some regulations in place for it, but in terms of what wind speed it actually would take to, you know, knock one of these over, or flip it over, I'll just, just for context, you know, we've spent, we haven't studied just the Beauregard tornado. We actually also spent time in several other tornadoes this year in Alabama, and for example, there was a tornado in in Kingville, um, up in kind of the, the northwest part of of Alabama, and it was an EF zero, maybe EF one, and completely lofted and flipped this mobile this manufactured home over and and threw it into the trees. There was another one um, just a, a few weeks ago, actually, down in Troy, Alabama, where a EF zero tornado, according to the National Weather Service, their best estimate, and I'm you know not disagreeing with that at all, went through a a trailer park a manufactured home park and actually flipped over four or five different manufactured homes. And we're talking, you know, 85, 80 mile an hour, maybe 90 mile an hour winds. So it does not take a, a whole lot to, to knock these over, especially when you get when you're close to the to the center of the the tornado where you get some of those strong updrafts as well. So there's certainly some aerodynamics and all that we don't quite understand as, as well as we would like um, also. But in general, no. It does not take a whole lot of wind to 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 waft, you know, many of these manufactured homes.
5: Understood, and Stephen, I've got this graphic up from you from a, a tweet you put out some time ago. This this product that you worked very hard on, we appreciate it. Can you talk a little bit to this one?
1: Yeah, um, this is uh, really built off of the Vortex Southeast uh, research that I did, which David alluded to, where I was able to map um, the precise location of Roughly about 90% of the mobile homes uh, in Alabama, which is around about 175,000 mobile homes, um, and that's something we haven't been able to do before. And what, what I was actually able to do is, and we're looking at an aggregated view here on on the panel on the left, which is, uh, you know, if there was just a bunch of black dots on the map, you couldn't see anything. So I've looked at a frequency grid here. Um, and it, what it really points to is this idea that um, specifically in, in what we would see in the southeast portion of Alabama, um, a lot of people um, have referred to this area as the East Gulf, uh, East Coast Gulf uh, Plain. This is largely where agricultural areas. There's a lot of descendants from from slavery and and a lot of very poor individuals that are living in rural conditions. Uh, unfortunately, we do have mobile homes in those locations too. So, the gist of this graph or the, of this map is saying that you know, if I had to say what's the difference between mobile manufactured housing in the Southeast versus the Central Plains. When we see mobile homes in the central plains like Kansas or Oklahoma, they're found in mobile home communities or parks. They're found near each other. It's not that we don't see that in Alabama. We do have mobile home parks in Alabama and quite a few of them, but we also see them peppered throughout the landscape. And specifically, if we look at factors like race, um, sex, age, income, all these vulnerability factors, they overlay hand in hand with where we see the greatest concentration of rural so these mobile homes that are isolated in southeastern Alabama, and I would argue that that's probably the most vulnerable group or fatality prone group. Um, and if we overlaid the Beauregard event, we would see a pretty high uh, frequency of these rural mobile homes. Um, and and I, David could correct me, but I'm not sure that uh, a single mobile home park was hit by the Beauregard event. Although a majority of, of homes that were affected or almost a majority of homes that were affected were manufactured housing in that event. So this highlights the big issue that we see in Alabama that we don't see in places like
2: Oklahoma or Kansas. Correct and yeah I'll just confirm that with with what Stephen said in that um, there were a couple of, of smaller mobile home parks that were kind of on the periphery of the tornado um, more so towards Smith Station towards the, um, the eastern half of the tornado but where it was strongest it was primarily these isolated rural uh, mobile homes.
0: And, um, Stephen, we've got one of your tweets up, and you're kind of showing the rotation track over uh, that map that you had assembled with mobile homes. Uh, Talk to us, uh, and, David, I think you were the actual boots on the ground, so both of y'all can probably talk about this. Um, You know, we saw a majority of those deaths were in the mobile homes, but there was actually a few site-built homes that also we saw deaths in.
1: Yeah, so uh, I'll start off and pass it off to David. Um, this is pretty, just uh, a prettier version, uh, cleaned up version of the map that I sent David that night and said, you know, this is where, you know, the MRMS sort of the, you know, the stuff that's coming out of NSSL, um, the, the radar drive products are um, highlighting where there was a strong rotation and we know there was a tornado. So I sent this and I think one of the slides or one of the versions of this image has the mobile homes overlaid on it. And gave that to David where he could have a good starting location. Um, and uh, what was the second half to your question? I'm sorry.
0: And some of these we follow, saw were, were maybe homes. As okay. you saw some homes, just regular built homes as well.
1: Yeah, so I'll, I'll pass that one off to David because any information that I gained from this event was
2: from David with the boots on the ground. Yeah, So so first off, I'd like to, I guess, make a point here that when we talk about you know, site built and mobile homes, you know, we tend to, you know, almost as we do with everything else in culture nowadays, kind of view it as this binary black and white, you know, you're either in a mobile home or you're in a site built. But in reality, when you're looking at it from an engineering perspective, there's, there's a whole spectrum of vulnerability that goes from, you know, very, very poorly built and poorly installed mobile homes, you know, to, very poorly built and you know unanchored site-built homes to you know well-built you know well-anchored homes so there's you know so when you look then at some of the these you know there were as far as we know there was at least one fatality in a traditional site-built home um, there were a couple others that were in a that to the best of our knowledge were in a modular home which is kind of in between a, a site-built and a in a manufactured home and that it's not built there on site. So it doesn't follow or it, it does follow the local codes, but it's kind of brought in. So it's a little bit of different situation there. But um, the fatality that we did see in a for sure site built home, you know, was a very old, uh, I believe it was a 1950s home that was literally, you know, sitting on nothing but a pile of bricks. You know, there's, there's, you know, we always, we like to think uh, or or give the illustration for engineering purposes, for resisting wind, you want to think about, can I pick that home up by the foundation, by the ground and flip it upside down? Is it going to be able to stay in place? If it can stay in place, it has what we call a vertical load path that is so critical in resisting these loads. Um, And so whether it's a site built home or a manufactured home, the common thread was that fatalities occurred in homes that had very little or no anchorage. And I think that's the consistent message um, that needs to come out regardless of whether it's a manufactured home or a site-built home.
0: And, and so, Stephen, my next question to you, which you guys have done a lot of, of this research with your Vortex Southeast project, uh, is the so- social science behind this. How, I mean, this was an EF4 tornado. So this was a strong tornado, which would likely occur with deaths no matter where, Uh, the the storm could have passed through but how do we get this information out to people and David maybe you can chime in on this as well uh, because you were actually there with with boots on the ground what was it like what did these people tell you and Stephen what is the research showing uh, about how to get this severe weather information out to people
1: yeah so um the other half or the other third of, of David and, and, and I's so sort of our Vortex Southeast work is we're working with social scientists as well. Um, so we have um, Mike Ignato, who's at the Walter Reed Institute for Research. Um, and then we have Kevin Ash, who's at University of Florida as an assistant professor. And also um, Kim Cloco-McLean, who's at Sims uh, OU in Norman. So those three have really worked hard on interviewing individual individuals who live in these manufactured homes or at least interviewing individuals that are experiencing tornadoes in the southeast and what we're learning is that there's an important emphasis on how they're perceiving these tornado warnings and how they're acting. We know that You know, if any of us received a tornado warning at this moment, we all would all react completely differently. Um, We're much more weather aware than others. Um, The previous thought was that mobile home residents just were very ignorant to what was going on weather wise. We're finding out in recent years that that's not the case. They know as much, if not more than the general permanent home resident, um, but they lack the ability or the self uh, ability to go out and make the right decision to, you know, heed the tornado watch and get to safety. They know their homes aren't safe, but they freeze. They don't know what to do. So we're learning a lot about their decision-making and that's incredibly important because we can issue all the tornado warnings we want, but if we don't understand the individual decision-making or we don't enforce stronger building codes, we're never going to increase
2: survivability and reduce the loss of life. Yeah. And I'll just, I'll just add to that with a couple of perspectives that I had while I was out there and, um, I actually was, was fortunate enough to spend some time with um, Daphne Wadu, who's at the um, University of Oklahoma as well, and she also was doing interviews of not just manufactured home residents, but, but any, and what really stood out to me was just how many of the survivors relied upon physical or environmental cues to actually do something. You know, so I think that ties back even to the whole, you know, the vulnerability in the Southeast where it's so much more difficult to see, actually put your eyes on the tornado or have a friend, you know, putting their eyes on the tornado that it kind of, as Stephen was saying, they, they may freeze in those situations. Well, is it really a tornado? Is it too late for me to actually leave and go somewhere safe? What do I do? And then at that point it, it really is too late. Cause then you start hearing wind picking up and debris hitting the, the house and so forth. Um, so I think there's there's certainly some some challenges there, and and I think the the other um, big education um, point that that we've got to work on from an engineering standpoint is it's just this feeling of hopelessness of saying it's an EF tornado, yes, it destroyed everything in its path, so there's nothing you can do, and and are there's plenty of research and there's plenty of case studies that I can point to, even in the Beauregard tornado to say, yes, there, what, you know, building codes matter, a stronger building matters. Will it experience no damage at all in the very center of the tornado path? No, but can it protect, or can it greatly enhance your, your odds of surviving? Yes, absolutely. Um, and it, you know, it, it's all about kind of what is our, what is our target performance, you know, our, our target performance for a manufactured home isn't going to be to, you know, survive an EF four tornado unscathed, but can we at least prevent it from being wafted in 100 mile an hour winds and just getting torn apart and having basically zero chance of survival for occupants? Yes, we can. We can do better than that. So it's kind of getting out of this binary or this hopeless feeling and actually saying, yes, we can do things to improve the survivability of all homes, not just manufactured. <laughs>
0: Chris, Chris, I want to bring you in on this because I know you, this is a very passionate subject for you. And in fact, you were, you and Steven are actually on weather brains talking about this as well, but you have experience in this. You, out of all of us, I would say on the panel, uh, you're a firefighter, you're a public servant for 15 some years. And this is something we talked about last week at the hurricane awareness tour. Uh, what's your thoughts on this? Why, why is it some people take this seriously and some don't?
3: Well, I, I, you know, this may be a little bit more controversial topic, but, uh, You know, I think it comes down uh, to a couple things. I myself grew up in a mobile home. Uh, You know, I I was, you know, this demographic of people. I really So I I totally understand where a lot of this is coming from. And you, you look in the Southeast, there's a lot of, there's a lot of issues. A, there's no, you know, there's not communities every five miles like there are in Kansas. So you get these mobile homes that are spread out, you know, you know, 10, 20 minutes from the nearest town. Then on top of that, uh, you know, it's just people maybe are are becoming complacent, the warnings, you know, they, they just don't take it seriously. And, and that was something a lot of I ran into as a firefighter. And, you know, you know, something, something about my experiences, you know, people love to tell you the truth, at least the fire department, because they always loved us. And, uh, and, and it just comes down to the personal responsibility. You know, some people don't have the ability to, and that's, you know, that's terrible. And I hate it just as much as the next person does. But you know, there are some people that just they they don't they don't listen to the warning, they don't heed the warning. And uh, you know, it comes down to a lot of other simple things too. I mean, just reading a map, you know, knowing where you are on a map. If if, if there's a tornado warning nearby, you know, just knowing where you are <laughs> does that affect you? I, I think there's a lot of lot of things that go into it, but uh, it, it's a tough, and I don't think there's one simple answer.
1: Yeah, if I can jump in real quick, that'd be great. Um, uh, Actually, Kim Cloco McLean has done some great work in the last few uh, months looking at sort of asking people, can they place themselves on a map? And very few people actually know where they are in the county. Um, They don't have a good sense of direction. They don't have a good sense of where they're located. Um, And that's really interesting because if we're asking mobile home residents to flee their home for better shelter... They may drive right into the tornado and and I think they know that, so that's that increases their their sort of desire to stay and take their chance. The other thing that's really interesting is, and David alluded to this, which was we know for a fact that almost every single person that gets a tornado warning seeks secondary confirmation they you know they look at their phone, they go turn on the tv they they do something to say, "Is this really happening?" Um, And with the Beauregard event, one thing that we cannot say, or one thing that we can say without a doubt, is that the media, the National Weather Service did a great job. Every single person that I know of that was down there didn't, there was nobody that said we didn't get the warning. They all had the warning. They all came to some understanding that they were in in trouble or at least there was a tornado on the way. And that's incredibly important because we still ended up with people dying. So we know that there's something happening going from receiving the warning and then actually taking action, and 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 that's some people wouldn't see that as encouraging, but that allows us to make the next decision to figure out what to do when
3: we are um, starting to figure out what decision making is going on. Right, Stephen, and and, and, to, and to follow up with that, you're exactly right. You know, the Facebook page that I run that I've been running for a few years now. You know, when I post a warning that comes directly from the National Weather Service that has all the information in it, uh, I'll usually bet eight or eight out of ten times the first comment's going to be, "Is it going to hit my house?" I mean, and and, and sometimes it, you know I have some friends that like to like play, play jokes, but you know, for the most part, I know it's people that that are being serious. They they really don't know, and uh, the confirmation bias uh, can be the greatest thing in the world, or it can be the biggest. It could be the reason that you, you don't survive an event. And, you know, you just have to trust that when a warning comes out, it's there for a reason, you know, to heat it. And, uh, and it's just tough. I mean, it's a lot of small things that uh, go wrong all at the wrong time that lead to, you know, bad things happening. It's just a, a series of small mistakes.
2: I'll point out here one really, it was just kind of one of those encouraging anecdotal stories that kind of warmed my heart amidst all the, you know, destruction and, and chaos there was I visited a um, a manufactured home kind of it was within the tornado path, but kind of on the on the right hand side, a little bit um, a little bit outside the worst damage. But I was talking with the 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 mother and she said that they you know, the warning, you know, they knew that they were, you know, some bad weather coming and weren't sure. But it was actually her son, who I believe was 12 or 13 years old, was literally on the computer on a site tracking the radar itself and saying, nope, we need to go shelter. And I'm like that's such an awesome story that, you know, that there are young people out there and some that have, you know, an awareness like this to whether they receive a warning or not to be able to know it and and go, you know, tell their family to go seek shelter because they're you know using some of those um, secondary cues.
0: I think that's a great point. We're talking about Alabama. Um, James Spann, well-known meteorologist in Alabama, uh, I believe I heard him say a couple weeks ago, you know, he goes and visits school every day that, that school's in session. And uh, one of his things is he puts a map up of Alabama and asks the students if they can point to where they live at. And that's something I've adopted in, in my school talks as well as, you know, geography. You, you need to know where you are, first of all, uh, so you know what to do. Uh, another kind of controversial subject, uh in this discussion, is storm shelters, Stephen? And uh, we know Oklahoma, Kansas, Texas, places like that—they have storm shelters. But uh, that—that's not the case here in the southeast, and it may not be as available for the, us in the southeast. As you were talking about the—the the population here is—I uh, hate to say it—but it, it, some of them can't afford these storm shelters. They're—they're they're quite expensive.
1: Yeah, that's. Um I wish I could talk more about this, um, and this is very parallel to some of Daphne Ledoux's work at at OU and and the National Weather Center. Uh, but, you know, I have a paper right now that's sort of in the, the hidden sort of review land, wherever it goes, and people are reviewing that now for publication, and it's with Kevin Ash. And one thing that, that we're pointing to is um, we're very quick to say, you know, the National Weather Service and FEMA both recommend that if you're in a mobile home and there's a tornado coming, you need to get out. Um, and individuals know that. And of course, getting out means a lot of different things. Do they have access to a vehicle? Does that mean run to their neighbors? Does that mean drive to the nearest shelter? So I started asking questions with all this great geospatial data that I have now and saying, well, where is the nearest shelter? And and what type of shelters are they? And what, what I found out was... Um, most of these counties, uh, specifically in, in northern Alabama, have made a considerable effort uh, since 2011 to build FEMA rated shelters where their community shelters where individuals can go, you know, they, they're open up, they get opened up during a tornado watch and they go take shelter in those locations and potentially they're a great avenue for survivability. Where that breaks down are those communities that are sort of poverty stricken. A lot of counties in southeastern Alabama are living sort of with a very small budget, if but any budget at all. Uh, most of them don't have any, you know, if they had money to build a storm shelter, they would use it to fix the roads. They would use it for a lot of other factors. And I and, and one thing that, you know, we're sort of starting to figure out, and I think in the next few years, uh, where my research is headed, is starting to figure out why um, shelters may not be the end-all be all or the perfect solution to tornado survivability they're expensive and I know a lot of these counties are going to be asking questions about where do we put the shelter our individuals in our county are spread out and we know that based on my data that says that you know mobile homes are peppered throughout the landscape so where do you put the shelter who opens the shelter who's paying for it who's upkeeping it there's a lot of questions that we need to, to answer Um, But one thing that we do know is that if, if mobile home residents are taking action during the tornado watch portion and getting to a safe shelter, that's the best bet for survivability. That's the number one suggestion I would give to people, which is you see a tornado watch, you live in a mobile home, you need to take action and and be prepared because you don't want to be caught in this fight or flight uh, sort of mentality.
0: Definitely. So, And, and you know, once that watch is issued, you know, it's, Watches are hours. Mornings are just minutes. Yeah. So it may be too late. I uh, want to shift gears just a little bit, David. I know some of your, your research obviously is with, with tornadoes, but uh, you also talked about uh, some, some hurricanes and things like that. I know you've uh, have been in, in contact with some work with, with Hurricane Harvey and Irma and Maria and Michael and uh, wind vulnerability along the coastlines. And, and Shay and, and Jared uh, both live in the Charleston area and the Hurricane prone area. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your research in the tropic air, tropics area?
2: Yeah, so this, this, I mean, it's really a related, you know, we're looking at wind vulnerability and certainly there's different vulnerabilities in more the inland areas versus the the coastal areas. But um, spent quite a bit of time, like you said, at Harvey, Irma, Michael, supportive efforts and um, after hurricane florence and a lot of this now is wrapped up in something called the structural extreme events reconnaissance network um, which is something founded by the the National Science Foundation and um, led by uh, Dr. Kajusi Corey up at Notre Dame and so the basic idea of this is is organizing the structural engineering community's response to these disasters and really to be able to maximize the efficiency, the quality, and so forth of the data that we're able to collect, this perishable data that we're able to collect, so that ultimately we can learn from it. I mean, that's our ultimate objective. And so, you know, we've spent quite a bit of time here after these um, after these hurricanes and documenting, you know, okay, what's the difference, what is the impact of building codes? You know, this is a perfect, unfortunately, a perfect laboratory to be able to very clearly see what a difference building codes can make. And, you know, the the significance is obvious in most cases, you know, when you're looking at this older construction versus newer construction and just the, the different types of, of damage that we observe. So it's been really enlightening and, and it does have carryover, you know, both into both uh, over into to tornadoes as well. David, you're talking
4: about all those different storms uh, between Harvey and Michael and all that. And as y'all have been going through your research, have you noticed that there have been any significant changes in the way that you know, the
2: social science
4: works with regards to
2: tornadoes? Say so again, you said in regard to the social science? Yeah, so have people's
4: opinions on these uh, or on the dangers changed and have they become you know, a little bit wiser as, it's, as they've seen the damage that you know, these storms have caused?
2: yeah i mean uh, i think both for both for hurricanes and tornadoes yes certainly you know after you know these really active seasons there is certainly an in- a heightened awareness of you know a vulnerability of sheltering and do i need to evacuate and so on but you know there's been quite a bit of research that has also found that that you know there's a you know, after a certain amount of time it just begins to kind of fade away those memories and it's just, it's not as, um, as big of a deal. I don't, the, the retention is not always what it, um, what we think it is, uh, for some of these, for some of these storms. Um, and so unfortunately you get situations like I was just, um, reviewing a study today that, um, my colleague, um, uh, Dr. Gajuski-Corey at Notre Dame had done in, in coastal North Carolina, actually, that I think it was New Hanover County or, uh, one of the counties that had been you know, impacted by Florence, and they had done this study before the hurricane hit. So about a year before Florence came, it was sometime in twenty seventeen that they did this study where they're interviewing homeowners and saying, "Do you know whether you have, you know, impact rated or wind rated garage doors, and do you have protection over your windows, and you know, un, you know, some of these kind of fundamental mitigation practices?" And we're finding that not only did many of the People, the homeowners not know about these things. Most of them had no intention of, you know, of doing anything to protect themselves either. You know, even being in these vulnerable areas. And so, you know, you'd, you'd love to go back now after the hurricane and run that same study and see how that's changed. But even I would expect things to change, but how long it's retained and how long it or how much it actually affects behavior is still something that, you know, unfortunately isn't quite what we'd like it to be
6: so uh before we wrap up here a little last question um what can we expect from you guys in the future with your research uh what can people expect
2: uh, um i'll go ahead and jump in then here yeah,
3: so, to with regard
2: to the, so with regards to the uh, i guess a specific issue is they related to the beauregard tornado really these field studies that we've conducted is just the beginning of what we're trying to do with this tornado. Um and I really think we have the potential to advance some some fundamental knowledge out of this. Um one being, you know, we've gone now and we've conducted these detailed assessments. We've documented, you know, what type of anchorage systems is present in in many of these manufactured homes, looking at vulnerability, looking at some really interesting good case studies that have come out of this as well, both for site built and um and manufactured homes and now we're working to essentially put this in the proper perspective so you know okay we see a home that performed better than you know what we had originally thought why is it characteristics of the tornado itself that changed is it terrain around it that changed? is it something to do with topography in tornadoes is you know there's a lot of these other factors that go into it and so we're really trying to unpack some of these factors that that relate to the more detailed aspects of, of tornado vulnerability um, for both for site built and manufactured homes. And that's really a thread that kind of carries over into a lot of my work, both with um, tornadoes and hurricanes, is really unpacking and, and very fine scale some of these factors that are influencing the individual vulnerability of a specific home. Um, and it's just because we see so much so much variability. There's, there's such a lack of uniformity in the damage patterns, and we're trying to understand that better.
1: Yeah. And, and sort of to piggyback off of that, um, along with, you know, that work that, you know, David and I continue to collaborate on, and and he looks at it from different viewpoints uh, as myself, and, and, and we're very open to, to sharing these results and, and, and working together to, to unpack these details. Um, the, the other aspect that, uh, you know, sort of is always my eye on the prize in terms of long term view of my research is we're we're now in this this realm where we have the data to start asking questions about the combination of 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 climate change and and also sort of the environmental or climate change uh, that we're seeing on the environmental factors related to severe weather as well as the societal change. Um, so people like, um, you know, Jeff Trapp at University of Illinois, Victor Gensini at Northern Illinois University, and, and some others that are, you know, running these models to help us say, okay, what do we expect severe weather to do in the next 30, 40 years uh, underneath of uh, a warming world? But at the same time, when we talk about disasters, we have to look at what's going on societal uh, wise. How are cities growing? How are they expanding? What's happening with these vulnerability trends? You know, Are we seeing more mobile homes, uh, greater gaps in wages? There's a lot of factors that increase the vulnerability of these residents that are going on at the same time. So looking at those two factors and how they're changing together and how that's affecting future disaster potential is something that, you know, I'm going to continue to focus on inside of tornadoes, hail, wildfires. um, The disasters go on and on and on, whether they're meteorological or geophysical themselves. So we now live in a world where we can start doing that. And um, that's really Kind of groundbreaking. We've we've only been able to do that in the last handful of years. Start looking at these disasters um, from a more holistic standpoint.
0: Well, Stephen and David, we certainly appreciate um, you spending some time with us and a, a really great conversation tonight. And. Ah, uh, one that uh, that we hope will be able to continue to to find ideas and, and help people stay safe during severe weather. Uh, for those of uh, who may be watching tonight or listening on the podcast, if they want to find more uh, of your research or or maybe following you on social media as you tweet out new and uh, ideas and, and, and maps and things like that, we didn't even get into your maps, Stephen. I know that uh, that that you work a lot with. Um, how how can they follow you all?
1: Yeah.
2: Go ahead, David. Okay, the best the best one for me is just going to be on 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 Twitter. I try to stay fairly active on there. Um, I'm more active in terms of posting when you know when there's an event going on. But um, I would love to continue the conversation on Twitter with anyone who's you know had some insights and um, had some questions. Um, it I found it a great tool for engagement. So my, you search for my name, or I, I think Scotty, you know my Twitter handle. I don't know if you'd be able to just drop that in the chat or or something yeah. else, but. Um, you know, find me on Twitter. I'd be more than happy to engage in continued discussions there.
0: We can definitely do that. And Stephen,
2: yeah, um, sort of the same for
1: me. Um, I tend to, you know, David and I retweet each other quite a bit, especially when we have these overlapping events. Um, I tend to not do as much field work as him, so I'm sort of tweeting the spatial analyses and and a lot of different perspectives. Um, so you can find me on Twitter. as just Stephen M. Strader, uh, and then also my website is pretty much. Um, always up to date with latest publications. You know, graduate student opportunities, um, and in general, just uh, the ability for people who want to get reach out to me um, uh, when I'm at Villanova in terms of research and teaching. So um, that's just stephenmstrader.org, and of course, that's all uh, available online. If you just look me up, you'll find me.
0: Awesome, well, guys, again, thank you for your research. Um- for I speak for myself, it's it's fascinating. Uh, the the days after the the Alabama tornado, uh, the stuff that you guys were producing was 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 just really top notch, and I appreciate the the work you've put into it. And. I uh, hope that we don't have any more uh, major weather events like this, but uh, I know that you guys are, are going to be there and, and, and always going to be researching it and trying to help people out uh, to, to survive these events. Uh, guys, stick around if you want to. Uh, we're going to shift gears uh, just a little bit. I'm assuming, Jared, are you ready for weather news, or do you want to get a weather roundtable first?
7: let's uh
0: let's do a little news all right off to you then
7: yeah let's do a little news how's everybody doing this evening thank you guys again for joining us uh rather enjoyed your episode of weather brains with uh, chris on it actually it was one of those weather podcast month episodes so that was really good but we're going to start our news segment here with me sharing my screen and talking about tornadoes yes uh tornado season has gotten off to a very active start in the Carolinas, particularly in North Carolina. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you some damage pass here. So this was surveyed by the national weather service in Raleigh. This is on May 11th. This is, so this is over the weekend um, tornado in Stanley County, North Carolina. So EF one tornado on the ground for about a little over a mile, max with a couple football fields, about three football fields or so. Nobody hurt, nobody killed. But um, so that was a, you know, associated with, you know, a, a severe weather outbreak that we kind of saw coming. Um, the 13th tornado decidedly was not, um, and don't worry. It wasn't just us that were kind of caught off guard. It was also the, uh, the storm prediction center. Yeah. I think everybody, <laughs> the magic of boundaries. This is why you do the analyses in the morning. Uh, the, the magic of these boundaries. Yeah. We had, a yeah, the EF two tornado developed, uh, it, it went right through wake and Nash counties, uh, in Raleigh's County warning area. And uh, what was interesting about this is that there was, it was a general risk. I don't even think Raleigh was in a risk area. I think they were in like a no thunder area, little boundary sets up a little bit of convergence, a little bit of wind shear, and that's all you need. And it do- dropped an EF2 tornado. Um, fortunately, nobody was hurt or killed. Warnings went out. Everyone was fine. Um, but is just,
0: and, go ahead. And Jared, I was going to say the Raleigh uh, KR krd or whatever the the radar say so their the radar was out during this event yes
7: yes it was the, the yeah the radar was out they were relying on the terminal doppler uh rdu uh at the airport there and also probably borrowing from blacksburg not from blacksburg but from moorhead city and from uh god maybe even uh probably uh, Wilmington at some point too. So uh, suffice to say it was a very challenging environment for uh, severe weather and tornado detection. But you know, th- those terminal Dopplers I tell you what, one minute updates. I mean, you, you, one minute updates, high resolution really can't go wrong with those. They they're there to detect wind shear and boy, did they do a good job of it. But yeah, this thing is, uh, it, it, I mean, what's crazy about this EF2 that went through Wake and Nash County is on the ground for 17 miles. I mean, it was a longer track tornado than the one that was actually in the severe weather event that they expected. So, you know, it's always kind of interesting how these work out. Um, And in addition to the tornado, there was a baseball size hail um, all over the place. There was hail in downtown Raleigh. I saw several friends from Raleigh uh, tweeting about this. So some big hail, some and and a tornado. I mean, and, and, and again, you know, these are these kinds of things. And when we say, you know, Severe thunderstorms can and will produce tornadoes with little or no warning. This is exactly what that is like. But again, the Weather Service in Raleigh did a phenomenal job getting the warnings out to people um, and getting this uh, and getting this rather interesting uh, setup, uh, identifying it, and then and then SPC issued a severe thunderstorm watch and just painted in a little slight risk uh, towards the end of that event. So it was interesting. It was definitely an interesting day on radar, to put it mildly. So down in South Carolina we've got some new opcons we've uh, we we used to operate on a five level scale at the emergency management division but they've decided to whittle that down to 3 and so make that a little easier on people it's a little easier to understand three levels versus five so opcon 3 everyday operations 78 degrees sunny like we've had today in charleston opcon 3 weather got to love it opcon 2 okay when we start Bringing some people in, we're, we're going to start looking at some emergency plans here. That's kind of like when we if we got to turn on parts of the EOC, that's when we're going to do it. And then OPCON, and then uh, OPCON one is where it's going to happen. Is where it's happening. Um, disaster is imminent. The EOC is open. Everyone's activated, ready to go. Um, it, it, so whatever storm is happening, hurricanes, things like that, it's happening. So. Three opcons again. It, it, really, in, in daily life, it's not something that you have to worry about what level the emergency operations center is activated at. But it's something that people find interesting. It's something that gets reported in the media. It's something that gets that's um, yeah, out there, and everybody wants to know what's the opcon. So they've simplified this a bit and finally we're going to go down to arkansas we're going to go take a little jog a uh, little jog west and uh, this made the rounds on twitter to, uh, this week and uh, i rather like this use of electronic billboards to broadcast tornado warnings and um and this is a uh, something that was a uh, first brought out uh let me uh let me make sure i credit the source here properly i had it up here for a second ago and of course you know me and my propensity to close windows uh so this is out of channel five out in um out in Arkansas. Let me get you some call letters there, but you know, they talked to this, uh, they talked to a billboard company about how they use polygon warnings and they use them to show tornado warning billboards. People are listening to their iPods. They're listen, well, iPods. That's so 2010. Um, you know, they're listening to, uh, you know, they listen to satellite radio. They might be listening to, um, to audio books. Yeah. I mean, audiobooks, things like that. And so, um, and so, uh, the billboards catch a lot of attention. That's um, a great use of electro- electronic billboard. And I guess the only other two options that we had, Evan was thinking, don't pass- don't park under overpasses, and um, my personal favorite would
5: be drive south. So uh, that I would think work, I uh, think this uh, is a great idea. I mean, you know, you got a lot of folks out driving, and for those mm-hmm. states that allow billboards, you know, I'm seeing more and more of these pop up. So. I mean, what a what a great way to reach everybody on the road to let them know um mm-hmm. you know something's up. We see it time and time again where there's a tornado occurring right near a road, and people have they're just kind of clueless, they have no idea to even look around, look out to the side. I mean, they're focused, which is great, they're focusing on the car in front of them, but to have a billboard up there, something bigger to to give them the warning, that's great.
7: Yeah, I mean, we look at that. I mean, that's pretty hard to miss. I mean, that's uh that I mean that that really that 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 really drives it home there. So so ashby street outdoor advertising hats off to y'all uh, out in arkansas thank you to kfsm and kxnw out in uh, arkansas for that report scotty back to you
0: all right thank you jared for that uh, we uh could be seeing some more of those tornado billboards going on i'll bring in chris jackson here our resident severe weather expert chris uh, portions of uh, the plains and looking at uh, the potential for seeing some severe weather over the next few days.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Scotty, uh, you know, setting up for the next seven to really, really out through the next 14 days, probably. Um, there's going to be good chances of severe weather across the Midwestern part of the country. And that, that's partly in due because this ridge is starting to set up over the Southeast. Uh, it, for the, for the folks that enjoyed the cool weather this morning, uh, I hope you enjoyed it because it's pretty much over, uh, looking ahead to the next seven days here in the Southeast, uh, you know, we're going to be in the 90s every day and uh, uh, unseasonably warm at night also with uh, temps running about uh, seven to eight degrees above normal each day. But uh, shifting back over to the Midwest, uh, yesterday was the first time uh, since the Storm Prediction Center started putting out eight day forecast that every day was an enhanced risk. For, or I'm not going to say enhanced, but they had a highlighted risk for severe weather in every uh, every product going out the, you know from day one all the way to day eight. And that's the first time uh, since they've started putting those products out that that's happened. So I I think it really, uh, you know, points to what's coming in the Midwest over the next week or so. And uh, it looks like for our little chasecation trip up at the end of the month that that pattern is still going to hold pretty true with the uh, the ridge over the southeast and southwest flow over the Midwest. It better. It better.
0: (laughs) Uh, Let's uh, let's bring in Shay. Shay, I want to. Peg, your interest on in the tropics, anything going there? And then I want to kind of have us kind of, Chris, uh, Evan, and I, we can kind of talk a little bit about the Hurricane Awareness
5: Tour last week and then um, anything else you guys want to discuss.
0: So Shay, anything brewing in the tropics or anything like that?
5: Uh, we're, we're watching uh, a little bit of a signal. It's a, it's in tandem with what's called the Madden-Julian oscillations, MJO phase, which is a, it's an oscillation that sort of uh, allows for less upper shear in the in the atmosphere in a certain area. And so we have a little bit of a – an aggregate of activity starting to show up in modeling towards the end of the month, but it's still, you know, two weeks out. We're not entirely certain if it, if it's consistent and it holds. We may be looking at uh, some activity in the Western Caribbean, uh, if not the Eastern Pacific, transferring some energy in that direction. Just an area to watch right now. It might be a hot spot right out the gate. Uh, if we don't, if we get through the month of May with, without any named tropical systems, would be the first time since 2014 we've gotten through May without a named storm. So. Uh, that's all we have right now. Everything's pretty quiet every, everywhere else. We have a, uh, like Chris said, this uh, large ridge out over the Atlantic. So that's going to keep the southeast and in, in a southerly warm flow, warm sector. Any fronts that come, maybe it held inland, so you may end up with some uh, prolonged periods of rain uh, from the midlands up to the highlands. Uh, for for any of these fronts that drop into the region, they'll just stall, and, and so that we kind of get into that pattern as well. And the, but it, at least the tropics are pretty quiet overall. So.
0: And Shane, not to put you on the spot, but I would assume with this ridge kind of parking over the southeast, we'll really see those ocean temperatures really
5: start to warm up uh, over the next few weeks. No, that's absolutely right. We're about 76 degrees in the Charleston area. We're about low to mid-70s up all southeast North Carolina, mid-70s, mid-upper 70s in Georgia. And, you know, as the air temperatures climb, once we start getting those low, when you start seeing the mean averages in the the 80s, that's when you know the sea surface temperatures are going to climb up to that number that typically – When you get a prolonged event like this, you'll see those mean temperatures between your lows at night and your highs in the day. Whatever that medium is, you're going to see the sea surface temps really kind of edge right along that, especially along the coastal shelf waters where they sort of normalize to that pattern.
0: And then Evan, Chris, I'll bring you guys in. We uh, last Thursday had the opportunity to uh, join the National Hurricane Center along with uh, the forecast offices in Greer, South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, raleigh north carolina as well as a lot of broadcast meteorologists throughout north and south carolina center brought the uh, hurricane awareness tour to the charlotte uh, douglas international airport you three or us three uh, were able to uh, be there and kind of uh, talk with some of the uh, some of the uh, pilots and, and crew members of, of the hurricane hunters and some of the staff of the hurricane center uh, any takeaways uh, that you guys got from that
3: I, I was i was absolutely impressed and you know, uh, I didn't realize that the National Hurricane Center only had 43 employees, and, and you you think about the amount of uh, responsibility placed upon those 43 employees is absolutely gargantuan. And, and so, you know, hearing that and being able to talk to the, the director of the National Hurricane Center, but uh, you know, Mr. Ken Graham, that that was that was great. It was a it was a good experience. Uh, meeting getting to meet the flight crew, I enjoyed all of it. And to add to that, uh, Chris talking about Ken Graham and meeting him.
4: So he really interested in nice how he really took a lot of our you know, the stuff that we talked about into consideration as they're debating ideas about you know, the, the cone of uncertainty um, and stuff like that. And the Cypher Simpson scale. Um, so they're not only are they a staff of only 43, but there are staff of 43 that are pretty much constantly striving to over, uh, to you know update their systems to be the best that they are.
0: I was going to echo what you said, Evan. Uh, Ken Graham is a super fantastic guy, and um, I know that we're all in good hands with with him running the, the hurricane center. Uh, one thing they, they were kind of stressing on was uh, the uh, the inland effects of, of landfall and tropical systems and flooding, uh, as we all know from Matthew and Florence and uh, even the flood event, not, not directly associated with Joaquin back in 2015, but we've had... Um, several uh, inland flood threats throughout the past uh, four or five years here in the Carolinas. And uh, that was a big point they wanted to stress last week was, was you know, even if you don't live along the coast, you still have to take uh, these landfall and uh, tropical systems seriously because of, of the flood threat. Um, A lot of statistics coming out. I will tell you, we uh, were able to capture a lot of content. And I know Chris is continuing to work on that content. Uh, We've got a couple more interviews we're trying to turn out. But uh, be looking uh, throughout the uh, few months uh, for a hurricane special from us. Uh, Some great conversations that we had. And I will tell you that Ken Graham uh, is a agreed to come on the show we're, we're probably going to have him on after the hurricane season but uh he is a very open guy loves dialogue and uh, a, a big asset so we're looking forward to that uh finally i want to bring in uh, peter peter you've been gone a while i know you've uh, been uh going through the school thing how's that been going for you
6: oh just great the stress <laughs> is just wonderful i love it <laughs> but uh <laughs> You know, it's been like a monsoon up here uh, since April, to be honest. Uh, We had two tornado watches issued in April, which is pretty rare for us. I mean, we get maybe one a year, if even that. um, But to get two within two weeks was pretty incredible. Um, But luckily, nothing too major happened with that. Uh, But just recently, it's been the ton of rain that we've had. Um, pretty much since April, we've had almost seven inches of rain, uh, and practically every weekend we've had some kind of measurable rain. So luckily this weekend it's looking sunny, <laughs> knock on wood till I jinx it. Um, and we're staying in the upper seventies through low eighties all the way through next week. So, uh, I think the chillier weather is finally going away. Uh, we were stuck in the fifties for much of the, much of this week. Um, so it looks like we're finally staying warm. The rainy pattern is going to break. And uh, we're going to see a lot more sun than precip. So thank God for that.
0: <laughs> uh, this some good news. Well, we are going to uh, go ahead and log off. We appreciate you watching tonight here on the Carolina Weather Group. Next week, we'll have uh, Jared Rennie on. He works for uh, NC State. He's a climatologist. And going to be talking about some uh, unique things that they are doing uh, here on the show. So we will see you back here next Wednesday night for another episode of the Carolina Weather Group. You guys have a great weekend. Stay cool out there as it really heats up over the southeast.